This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Welcome to the latest Global Market Perspective a podcast from Schroders designed for professional investors in South Africa with a particular focus on offshore investing. We're now several weeks into lockdown, both here in the UK and in South Africa, so I hope everyone listening is safe and well. This is Gavin Ralston, head of the Strategic Client Group at Schroders, and I'm talking today to Azad Zangana, senior economist also at Schroders. Here at Schroders, we're getting quite used to the idea of remote working. I think as of this week, 99% of our staff globally are working from home, which is not something I would certainly have believed possible only a few weeks ago. So today we'll use the next 20 minutes or so to discuss the consequences of this lockdown for economic activity and try to put some sort of shape, however difficult that may be for any forecaster, on the economic influences on global markets in the next 12 months. Obviously, one of the key developments since mid-March, when markets reached a trough, has been the scale of the recovery in risky assets, particularly so in US equities. Part of that comes from the level of stimulus provided by the Fed and other central banks, but it also reflects growing optimism that there is a way forward as rates of infection plateau and lockdowns start to ease. So the time we're we're speaking, the S&P is down only about 12% year to date, although most European equity markets are still 20% or more down from the start of the year. Obviously, you in South Africa have had an additional cushion from the strength of the dollar against the rand, which has meant that uh, global equities in rand terms are up for the year. But one of the things I want to explore with Azad is the extent to which economic fundamentals support the relatively optimistic view that markets now seem to be taking. So Azad, when we talked a month ago, you just revised your growth forecast for the, the new normal, as it were. Given the data that we've now seen uh, for the response of economies and consumers to infections and lockdown, have, have you changed your expectations for growth for this year and next? Hi, Gavin. No, we, we haven't made any changes uh, as of yet. We're still uh, monitoring uh, the situation and we're only really just about uh, starting to get a little bit of um, real economic data uh, trickling in. Um, but until we have the first set of GDP figures for the first quarter, um, then we won't uh, have a, a very good understanding of the scale of the uh, the shutdowns. In terms of our, our thinking and how it's evolving for when we do come to update it, um, a number of countries have ended up with longer shutdowns than we had anticipated, uh, especially in, in mainland Europe, where uh, most uh, countries, including, for example, Italy, should have come out of its shutdown uh, at the start of April. But that looks like uh, it's going to now happen around the start of May or even mid-May. So if you like, the the length of the shutdown has ended up being longer than expected. But the um, scale of the shutdown in terms of the number of companies being impacted has ended up being smaller than we had anticipated. So uh, in that respect, there's a little bit of um, optimism on that front. But clearly, it's still very early days. And um, we're still concerned about the risk that not all the companies can can start up once again very quickly. Some, of course, won't start up at all again, and they will go bust. 
Um, and then the other risk that we're, we're very concerned about is the possibility of a, another outbreak causing what many people refer to as a W-shaped uh, recovery caused by another round of shutdowns and lockdowns. So uh, that's where we, are, where we are at the moment. And yet again, last time you talked about the, the balance of probability between a V-shaped recovery, where things get back to normal relatively quickly, and a W, where we get uh, recurrences of infection later in this year. H has that balance in your mind shifted? A little bit. We, we've seen um, another round of outbreaks in, in China, which has led to uh, some closures in some small uh, areas. Um, and also we've seen Japan now going through its own lockdown as the number of cases there have suddenly started uh, to rise. It's clear that just because a country has managed to avoid having a severe breakout of, of cases, or if they've managed to uh, flatten the curve, as we say, and reduce the number of, of cases and deaths, it doesn't mean it's suddenly immune from new cases through travel. So, yes, we have been raising the probability, and we think it's probably around now 38% uh, the likelihood of a, a W shape or another set of shutdowns towards the end of this year. And then such data as we are seeing, and there have been some PMIs, April PMIs released today, do suggest that the, the impact on whether it's consumer spending or business confidence is, is worse than the market's anticipating. I mean, do, you, do you agree with that? Well, it's, it's always difficult to um, estimate these indicators because at the end of the day, these PMIs are a measure of breadth rather than scale of uh, either good news or bad news uh, for that matter. Um, but what these PMIs suggest is roughly 75% of private corporations have been negatively impacted. And that's what these record low numbers being printed show you. But what the, what it doesn't tell you is have they been slightly impacted have they been significantly impacted or have they been shut down altogether because the way that these indices are created they just simply ask is your output up or down compared to last month they don't take account for the scale of the the rise or fall and they don't weight the companies by the, their relative size so uh, at best we can use these indicators as a um, an indication of the scale of, of the situation. Um, but we, we really can't read too much into it uh, at, at this point in time. And of course, it only covers private industry, not the government, which in most countries has continued to operate. The, the other big development which we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been the collapse in the oil price. So despite production cuts, uh, the, the, the sheer drop in demand has meant that there's a huge volume of oil on the market and no takers. How, how do you integrate that fact into your growth forecast? Is it good news or bad news looking out for 12 or 18 months? For consumers who and, and households who have no exposure to the oil sector, don't work for an oil company and so on, uh, it's good news. They, they should see a decline in energy bills, the cost of fuel uh, for cars, for transport and so on. Um, but of course, for producers, this is a, a disaster. The majority of producers around the world 
cannot operate with oil prices this low. And recently, of course, in, in the US, we had oil prices to go below zero, which was an indication that there was just simply too much supply, not only for the amount of demand that there was out there, but there was too much supply for the storage facilities that are available. So um, eventually, some investors or some buyers of oil had to um, sell their holdings uh, at a loss, at a negative rate, uh, in order to get rid of it. Um, so it, it's a mixed message. And if, if a country is, a, is largely an importer of oil, then it's good news. If a country is largely an exporter or is involved in the, the refining of oil, then it, obviously this is bad news for them. I mean, one economy that's a big importer of oil is, of course, China. And we have seen uh, first quarter GDP data from China last week, which again was weaker than markets expected. Um, I, I guess there's a, there's a sense that people are looking to China pro to provide uh, some sort of indication of the experience of other economies as they begin to lift restrictions. What, what do you read into what's going on in China now? Yes, the data was, was truly uh, dreadful. I think the majority uh, of economists out there that look at China uh, secretly have their own estimate of, of what's going on uh, in terms of the economy. And uh, they, of course, were, were also disappointed. Uh, there's always skepticism around Chinese data. So um, most economists would have thought that they, they wouldn't publish such a negative number, um, but they did. And in in one sense, it highlights how, how desperate the situation was in the first quarter. Um, but on the other hand, the, the good news that comes from all of this is it should encourage policymakers in China to be much more active in stimulating um, the economy. A fiscal package, which, which is already in place, but is likely to be now be expanded uh, thanks to the, the very poor data that we've just seen. Okay, and just staying on that theme of how governments and central banks react, let, let's say it proves difficult to lift restrictions, that there's no real sign of a significant reduction in the number of infections, and European countries and the US remain locked down. How, how do you think governments and central banks would react to that situation? So I, I would say that there are probably two phases of, of the response uh, to this crisis. Phase one is simply the survival period, uh, trying to help as many companies as possible simply survive the lockdown and the, the loss in revenues. And for households, it's to replace as much lost income uh, as possible in order to, to make sure that they're able to carry on without ending up defaulting on loans, uh, etc., being able to feed themselves, uh, and so on. But phase two um, requires a, another round of stimulus in order to boost demand to help encourage companies to restart quickly in order to return to profitability uh, as soon as possible. So if these lockdowns end up running for longer than expected, then clearly phase one will be longer. The length of time providing bailouts and loan guarantees will have to be extended. And then potentially phase two will have to be larger. So even more stimulus to help get the economy back on track as quickly as possible. And, and there seems to be no limit to the firepower that either governments through fiscal spending or central banks through QE are able to bring to the party. Well, if there are some limits, then they've yet to be tested. Um, generally speaking, 
markets have uh, remained reasonably uh, calm through this period. Um, you know, bond yields have, have largely, especially in the developed world, uh, remained reasonably uh, stable. Um, there are questions around what's happening in emerging markets, especially in the debt markets there. Um, and in addition to that, we, we of course have had Italy coming under quite a bit of pressure uh, in, in its bond markets as well. So um, I think where markets and investors are are confident that the long-term outlook is still stable and the currencies are stable, then they are prepared to back up the actions of these governments. But there are other areas of the world, especially in emerging markets, where investors are clearly more concerned, uh, which has led to a rise in yields and a fall in prices of those uh, bonds. So just staying with Italy for a moment, I mean, the markets are seemingly getting more concerned about the Italian situation, if you judge by the uh, yield spread between Italian and German government bonds. I mean, do you think there's any risk of a return to the Eurozone crisis environment we saw in 2012, 2013? Uh, yes, I do. I think there are there's quite a considerable amount of risk uh, from here on out. Uh, there are several reasons for this, and uh, obviously this this podcast isn't long enough to go through uh, every point. But just to be very quick, Italy is highly indebted, 135% uh, of of GDP. It's not the most indebted, but it's by far the largest heavily indebted country in Europe, which basically means it's too big to bail out. Um, the third reason is Italy just simply doesn't grow enough in order to be able to repay that debt going forward. And then finally, the politics is absolutely terrible uh, in Italy. Uh, all sides are fighting to outdo each other, to sound more Eurosceptic. Um, and that's meant that they have threatened not to take on the the bailouts and loans that are now being offered by the European Union because they're simply not generous enough or because they come with strings attached. In other words, forcing the Italians to reform their economy, to reform their public finances in order the, so that they can be uh, more... Um, better used to be able to remain within the eurozone but uh, that that hasn't worked so yes the risk i think will remain and probably will escalate in in the weeks to come and there doesn't seem to be much sign of appetite for risk sharing from the strongly more strongly financed northern european countries like germany and the netherlands well, that's a natural thing um, to expect. I mean, if would you, you know, lend money to somebody who has habitually borrowed too much and uh, in the past inflated away their debts? No, you wouldn't. Um, even if these bailouts are, or, or debt mutualization is agreed, the fundamentals don't change. It's still the case that Italy just doesn't grow enough in order to be able to become self-sustaining. And and that's why you, you will see a reluctance from uh, the less indebted member states to, to share the burden. How do you see the situation in the UK? Um, there's been a lot of criticism here for the relatively slow response of the government to the infection in the first place, relatively poor provision of things like testing. Do you think the UK is in a worse position than the rest of Europe? 
the UK certainly doesn't look good when you compare statistics on things like the fatality rates. Um, they are a, a pretty good indicator of the success in the tracking of cases and the obviously the, the resulting deaths that um, then follow. In fact, the fatality rate in the UK has just overtaken Italy. So it clearly is uh, a major problem here. But when you look at um, the UK and compare it on other measures, uh, for example, the number of cases or deaths uh, as a share of uh, the population, then it's not quite as badly hit as, for example, Spain uh, or even Italy in that matter. Spain has seen one of the most intense um, outbreaks in the world, in fact, um, and, and is, is really struggling uh, as a result. Beyond that, the, the fiscal response in the UK has been... Uh, pretty generous. Um, so I would expect the UK to come out of this reasonably strongly um, and certainly no weaker than the majority of European countries. Um, so it is, it's not too unfavourable. And moving back out to the big picture, uh, the dollar has been something of a safe haven as it tends to be in crisis circumstances. What's your view now of the dollar looking forward? I'd say the dollar and, and the euro, for that matter, have, have ended up being quite stable uh, through this period. We, we have had a lot of volatility in the interim, but uh, we're now at a point where the level on euro dollar is largely where it was about six weeks ago uh, or so, having had very a, a strong uh, bounce in the dollar and then a subsequent sell-off. Um, but other currencies have really struggled. Um, you know, the, the British pound is just one that, that is really reflecting, I think, a lot of the Brexit uncertainty, which still hangs in the air and is, is unresolved. And then, of course, the emerging market currencies like the South African rand um, will continue to struggle through a period where investors simply want to reduce the amount of risk in their portfolios. Um, emerging market currencies are seen as more risky than developed market currencies. But otherwise, the dollar and the euro remain stable against each other, um, but they have strengthened quite considerably against most other currencies. And as you say, emerging markets, currencies like the South African Rand or the Brazilian Real, you think will, will continue to struggle? I think they will continue to struggle until we have um, clear evidence that the situation, not only in those markets, but also more globally, that the situation has improved and we've turned a corner. Um, until we start seeing countries unwinding the lockdowns, uh, be it gradually or otherwise, um, then I think the risk appetite for investors will remain quite poor um, and they will continue to avoid uh, the most risky assets, including uh, emerging market currencies. And, and one final question. As you see the data coming through over the next month or so, what, what are the key data releases you're looking for to give you an idea of how economies are performing? So really, we're, we're going to be focusing on um, two sets of data. Um, the first is your output-based data, things like industrial production, any index of services or GDP, because that will give us an idea of the scale of the shutdowns that we've had in the economy. We know roughly the length of time because we can we can see when shutdowns began or shutdowns end, but we don't yet know the, the scale of the, the shutdown. So that's going to be very important. The other set of 
data that we're going to be tracking is the labor market data. So if unemployment rates rise very sharply, uh, then that's going to be an indication that a number of or a large number of workers will be displaced within the labor market and it will take them longer to get back into employment uh, than otherwise would have been the case had they been temporarily furloughed. Um, so a temporary furlough, I think, helps to ensure that these workers can go back to work fairly quickly and allow the economy to rebound strongly. Great. Azad, thank you very much indeed. I hope we've uh, been able to give you some sort of clarity on the economic situation amidst enormous uncertainty. Uh, I guess we're saying the economic data will continue to get worse before it gets better, and even then there's still the issue of how much the infection rate reduces or flares up again towards the end of the year. But for the time being, thank you very much for listening and stay safe. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998. Registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment.